This is Music and the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Hi, this is Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today we're having our second episode on virtuosity in church services. This past week we heard from Joshua Bussman talking about amateurism and amateurishness in evangelical worship music. And um, Crawford, this is actually our most popular episode by far so far um, in terms of number of downloads. Because everyone has an experience of some sort with virtuosity in, in church, whatever that means to you. Yes, it's something that we all encounter and that sometimes... If you're in one particular kind of church for a length of time, you might think, well, the way that we understand virtuosity is the normal way, which is why we're actually doing this series, because it's a number of different angles. Yeah, because if you if you encounter it from different perspectives, what counts as a virtuosic performance in a particular denominational context might not read as virtuosic in another one, or it might read as virtuosic but inappropriate. Yes, and I think that that's really um, the big issue is like what is suitable for the church service versus what reads as like entertainment or showing off or prideful. Right. Because most of us understand, generally speaking, what we mean by virtuosity, which is like this display of musical skill that calls attention to itself in a certain kind of way. And um, next week we'll be hearing from David Vanderham talking about a musician whose virtuosity isn't apparent until you see him. So tune in uh, next week. But if you if you see this musical skill as something like something that calls attention to itself in some settings. That virtuosity is seen as a way of praising God, of glorifying God, like, wow, God has given me these abilities and I'm sharing them with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm giving them as a good gift to God. Yes, and and this is partially why it's important to recognize that the response that you get is is what determines whether or not something is virtuosic. Because say that you're playing something, say that, you know, a pianist is playing a piece in C-sharp major, you know, or, or something, and it, it's like really hard for them to play, but no one in the audience can tell. That mm-hmm. that won't read as That's virtuosic. Yeah, about. yeah. 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 But before we started the episode, Crawford and I were talking about our respective Sunday services. And I, as often happens, um, I had a sticking note, which hopefully no one in the whole church <laughs> knew that there was a note sticking. I, I hope no one did. I think I managed it. But no one is no one uh, is going to hear that display of skill, ideally, if I'm skillful enough. Yes. Right? It's, a, it's a virtuosity that's covering itself, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> no one should know that I was able to cover that, I hope. But at this at the same time, if you play something really flashy, people will often hear, oh, that's really flashy. Oh, that's really interesting. And in some settings, that flashy piece is going to be seen as a prideful entertainment kind of thing that happens. And in other places, it's like, wow, we, we have this wonderful instrument in our church. We have this wonderful musician. Praise God. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's the way, it's the, the difference in the ways in which those, the same thing can be understood in different ways that I guess is what we're, yeah. we're interested in exploring mm-hmm. right now. So the angle that we're talking about today is virtuosic music or the absence of it in fundamental Christian churches. And this area of Christendom is something that's very close to Crawford's in my heart because we both grew up in fundamental churches. And I'm using the term fundamental and fundamentalist to talk about these churches that are coming out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s. So Protestants who left mainline Protestant denominations 
to form independent churches or new denominations that were focused on separatism. Yes, and historically very influenced by the revival movements in the U.S. Yes, and my doctoral research focused on music in fundamentalist churches, so it's not just um, my my own background and Crawford's background. This is this is I um did a doctoral dissertation on that, which I'll link to in the show notes. One of the continual things that even before I started my research, I was wondering about was like, how do you decide in, in these fundamental churches, how do you decide what to do or what not to do in terms of virtuosity or showing off? So there's this tension in how fundamentalists understand virtuosity or musical skill in church services. On one hand, there's this passage from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter, chapter 9, verse 10, which says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. And that's in, the, that's in the King James. Most fundamentalists prefer the King James Bible, at least until recently. And so on one hand, they would believe that Christians are called to do their absolute best at whatever it is that they're doing. Right, and that this is a command from God. Yes, and a command from God, and if you are following God, you are going to do your best at it. And right. so what that means is if you are a vocalist who has access to classical voice training, you're going to take voice lessons and do your best at them. And whatever your best ends up being, you know, is, is largely determined by your aptitudes and your, your teacher's skill and those kinds of things. But whatever it is, you're going to do your best at it, right? Which is seen as kind of a stewardship of God's gift to you. Yes. And in this tradition, Western art music and classical performance practices in general are held up as the highest iteration of what doing your best is. And that's a whole nother issue that we're not going to get into in this podcast. You're welcome to check out my dissertation or my book that might come out in the next decade or so. But let's acknowledge right here that that is what is being held as the highest. And we're just going to, you know, kind of set that aside as a whole nother issue. Right. So, so take for granted that pursuing your art to the best that is offered to you means going in this particular direction. Yeah. So on one hand, you have this, we're going to do our absolute best. And if I'm a vocalist who has access to voice lessons in the classical tradition, that's what I'm going to do, right? But then on the other hand, you don't want to show off and you don't want to call attention to yourself if you're, say, singing a solo in a church service. Right. Which seems impossible because, of course, you're calling attention to yourself. You're standing front and center. Everyone's looking at you. Right. But you don't you don't want to communicate a sense of pride in your accomplishment. Yes, yeah. that this is about you. In fact, this is about the text and the God that you are yes. worshiping. So what this looks like and sounds like is classically influenced hymnody. And for vocalists, that means hymn arrangements or sometimes newly written songs. And by and large, these songs are fairly simple, fairly simple diatonic melodies that a congregation might be able to sing. Sometimes it might be at the, at the end of their um, aptitudes in the sense of I've, I've heard fundamentalists complain, oh man, that was written as a solo, but then the congregation loved it. So we had to sing it for the congregation, but it's really not very good congregationally because it's hard. Right, right. It might, it might exploit a vocal range that the average congregation doesn't possess. And so in that way, it's virtuosic. Yes, yes. But it's still like conceivably, conceivably could be done by a congregation. Or sometimes it, it is something that isn't quite congregational, but it is not vocal pyrotechnics by and large. There are a few exceptions, but that's not really what it is. Right, right. It's not, it's not marked by melismatic writing. So on the other hand, because um, we're also talking about virtuosity in instrumental music, I instrumentalists typically play hymn arrangements if they're doing something uh, without voice, if it's only instruments. They'll play hymn arrangements, and sometimes, depending on the aptitude of the musician, sometimes these arrangements can be incredibly, incredibly 
virtuosic. Yeah, and audibly in, so. Wow, I've had a lot yeah. of training. Some of them, I'm, there's no way I'm touching that. That is hard music. And oftentimes that virtuosic arrangement is depicting the text. Like the best, the best of these fundamentalist hymn arrangements for instruments are written such that the text is interpreted by the composer. If we're thinking of the hymn, It Is Well, and the last, the last stanza, and Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a, as a scroll. That is sometimes set to extremely virtuosic accompaniment because it's seen as a way of depicting Right, as, as a form of text painting. Yeah, yes. So in that way, virtuosity is kind of used in service of something else that has spiritual significance. So we are understanding the text better, we being the congregation. We are experiencing that text through that, that um, display of virtuosity, but the display of virtuosity was not the point. Right, it's not gratuitous. The point was not that we would look at that pianist and go, oh, wow, it's amazing what you could do. Like, we might also do that because, wow, some of it's really hard, but at the end of the day, the goal was that, that we would experience that text in our hearts in a more profound spiritual way. And to that end, arrangements made on more meditative texts are probably not going to include much display of virtuosity at all. With with I mean we should say though that there are certain exceptions to this and what we're talking about right now is more the case now in 2018 than 30 years ago. If you're looking at hymn arrangements, instrumental hymn arrangements from 30 years ago, some of them are just arpeggios up and down the keyboard because that was considered beautiful and right, it's appealing to the aesthetic taste you know, of the time yeah, yeah yeah so so there there is certainly variance here this isn't a hegemonic all composers write in this particular way but these, these are some general uh, reasons for virtuosity and in instrumental music that really aren't there in vocal music right so we we end up with this tension especially for vocalists which is that what if you are trained so that you can sing a really high note and you can do this really flexible beautiful stuff with your voice that an average person certainly can't do because they haven't had all this training and this is your good gift to god this is what your hand found to do or this is what your vocal folds found to do this is what you have trained to do that is your best and so you want to sing like that in church you want to sing a high note at the end but people hear that and think, oh, yeah, you're showing off. Right, because the voice is identified with you, the person, in a way. There's no distance mm -hmm. between you yeah. and your instrument in the way that there can be between a pianist and the piano. Yeah, and this is, this is something that I asked all the voice professors at Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina about, as well as a number of other vocalists affiliated with the school. All of the fundamental churches that I studied in my um, doctoral research were loosely, very loosely affiliated with Bob Jones University. So I, I interviewed a lot of the professors at the school, and it was something that came up a lot. So I was like, you know, there's this really interesting tension. Like, you have all this amazing training, but you don't really hear that in church services. Why? And I got a bunch of different answers, um, which we'll go into in, in a little bit. But one thing that did come up was people saying, yes, I can, and I do want to give that gift to God. I do want to sing a high note. But I'm not going to because people think I'm showing off or people hear that and they just want to clap because, wow, that was amazing that you can do that with your voice. And I don't want to do that. That's not spiritually beneficial. Right. So there's a certain amount of self-filtering that's going on. Mm -hmm. What can be perceived in worship in a way that I don't want it to be perceived? Yeah. And it's something that has happened more and more over the course of time. Whereas, say, 30 years ago, vocalists might have felt very comfortable singing a high note or doing something that was more virtuosic with their voices. Whereas today, 
so many younger fundamentalists are influenced, in fact, by the evangelical worship music that Josh was talking about last week, and that style of mic'd voice where you don't have to project. Right, which is a much more intimate sound. Yeah, it's a much more intimate sound. It's quieter. You don't have to project as much. And, you know, this is also the case in piano music particularly. Pianos are much more likely to be mic'd now, so you don't have to have that continual octaves in the bass line filler that many fundamentalists will do when accompanying from the piano. And um, just so all of our listeners know, in fundamentalist church services, by and large, the piano is the leading yes. instrument, not the organ. There are some exceptions to this, but this is very much in the revivalist tradition with piano-driven hymn singing. A lot of the most notable aural aspects of the piano style, like playing for services to accompany congregation singing hymns, comes specifically from the need to project in a large space without microphones. Yeah. Potentially a large space that is this thrown-up tent with a sawdust floor, if we're talking revivals. Yeah, so you're in, a, in an acoustically far-from-perfect space. A lot of the most notable features of fundamentalist piano playing derive from a really practical standpoint. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you have to make the piano heard, therefore you'll play octaves in the melody. Okay, you have to keep a congregation of a really large size going rhythmically, so therefore you have to play octaves in the bass. Mm -hmm. So you're going to fill in on all the eighth notes and sometimes sixteenth notes. So what's happening now, and I've heard this from a number of pianists, is that they want to play in a more pared down or spare style. And I'll, I'll link to um, one conservative evangelical writer speaking about, well, how can you do that? How do you how do you pare back your piano hymn accompaniment? I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Thinking about like, well, why would that happen? Well, if your piano is mic'd, you don't have to fill as much because you're loud enough to fill up your huge sanctuary, um, your huge kind of big box kind of sanctuary. These, these sanctuaries are fr frequently very sound dead. Yeah, so a new circumstance is giving rise to a new way of playing. Yes, but in addition to that, it's also given rise to a different way of understanding what that very full piano yes. sound means. And I've heard pianists say, oh, that to me that feels like you're just showing off. To me that feels like you're just loud for the sake of being loud. To me that, that doesn't read as a good spiritual thing. So you're thinking about the spiritual intent of the musician through the musical style that they are choosing to use or in which they've been trained in the only one they know. Right. And this is, this is because the congregation's role in listening to this music is always considered very heavily. Like you, you can't just think of the music being presented in an objective way, and then people will encounter that somehow, you always have to think of mm -hmm. how will the congregation be participating in this at this moment, which is why, for instance, vocalists or composers who are composing for vocalists are free to come up with a new melody because the singers will be communicating words mm -hmm. that the congregation can hear and meditate on. Whereas someone writing just for an instrumentalist will be constrained to using melodies that are already familiar to the congregation with a particular text. Yes, so that they can hear the text in their mind. Yeah, exactly. Many fundamental churches use a projector now where you can project the text up on a wall or on a screen. And oftentimes churches take advantage of that by projecting the text of the instrumental hymn arrangement. So you're sitting there listening to the offertory and you see the text up on the wall. And I talked to composers for a piano who said that because they could expect the text to be projected, 
they wrote much more interpretively because they realized, well, maybe no one has stanzas three and four memorized, so I can't expect them to have that in the back of their mind as I'm interpreting the text in my hymn arrangement. But now that oftentimes these texts will be projected, they say, oh, I can interpret that particular metaphor in stanza three that people might not remember otherwise because I can expect that the text will be projected. Yes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to this idea of congregational participation. If we're thinking about instrumental music, we're thinking about someone participating by what I call inner singing, um, which I'll, I'll link to a, a blog post I wrote about inner singing, actually. It's this idea of like, you're singing along, you're singing along with the text just silently, right? In the way that you might carry on a, a little dialogue with yourself, but interiorly. So if you're listening to instrumental music that is virtuosic, you have this opportunity to in have the text interpreted for you. But so the, the music itself is not necessarily being encountered in its aesthetic beauty. I mean, that, that can be a part of it, but the aesthetic beauty will always be serving the text. It is primarily meditation on the it's, text. It's about the text. That is yeah. 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 the congregation's participatory role. Yes. So the congregation won't necessarily be thinking, oh, that was a beautiful transition from one key to the other. Mm -hmm. The congregation should be thinking, oh, Jesus is the lover of my soul. You know, the, the yes. congregation should yeah. have the text in their mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. Any musical development must, in this particular tradition, spring from the text or be yeah. called for by the text. Yeah. And, and of course, composers take a lot of liberties. Like, it's not like every single composer has, in the fundamentalist tradition, only is tied to all of this. Like, of, of course, people are using creative license and being oh, yes. artists, right? But at the end of the day, like, the point is about the text and the music is serving the text, right? So this is not a tradition, um, as you might find, say, you know, I work in an Episcopal church and I play untexted, non-texted instrumental music, say for a postlude or whatever. And in this tradition, that is seen as a way to glorify God, right? Even though there's no text associated with what I'm playing. Right. So, but in this tradition, it, that's b almost beside the point. Even if this music can glorify God in a more generic way, you should be glorifying God in a very specific way by calling up the text. So with vocalists, though, it's a different sense of what participation is in that while people don't expect to be able to play the piano or whatever, there is this sense that even if they aren't trained as a vocalist, they could be trained as a vocalist and they could be able to sing this. And then there's a whole nother layer of testimony and ministry for a vocalist. So all, all musicians in fundamentalist churches are supposed to have what's called a good testimony. And that could be everybody from a small child who is has been born again. These are evangelicals who believe in a born again conversion. So anyone from a small child to a very old person who's being who's playing the piano or whatever in a church service, they're expected to have a good testimony in their faith community. Right, which means that what they are singing is something that they can personally attest to. I would actually talk to vocalists who told me I only sing songs that have spoken to me personally. Like they didn't oh, wow. just choose songs for the sake of choosing songs, which, you know, I, that's, again, I'm sure some people just choose songs because, wow, this is really pretty. But at the end of the day, the point is a very spiritual, a very specific kind of spiritual ministry, right? Yes. What this means for vocalists is another tension. Like we started off by talking about this tension between wanting to give your very best to God, but not wanting to show off. And now here we have another tension, which is that on one hand, fundamentalist leaders have a very specific understanding of what capital G good music is. And that is anything from like the way 
vocalists project their voices to the way they stand, to what instruments they sing with, to what musical styles their particular performance has been influenced by. Right, there are, there are distinct parameters to this. Very, very specific parameters. And musicians who are trained in the fundamentalist tradition are expected to hew to those standards very closely. And if they don't, they, you know, they're not going to be scheduled to sing again, or they're going to have a pastor come and talk to them. The music director might say, like, you really need to sing in the way that we have accepted as the right way. Right, because this, this goes back to the congregation's role. The congregation shouldn't be shocked by anything that happens during a musical piece. The congregation shouldn't think, oh, wow, that reminds me of music that I used to listen to back in the 70s. Before I was when born I was, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, and here's the other side of the tension, there is a lot of exception to this for vocalists who are not particularly trained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a vocalist who is an amateur, who's not particularly trained, who gets called, and this is something that, a term that many people I interviewed used, which is that, that a country vocalist, as opposed to like the city person. So we have like a country mouse, city mouse, that kind of dichotomy. So the country vocalist is someone who, for whatever reason, probably lack of resources, hasn't had this classical training, who doesn't quote unquote know better, who might do specific stylistic things that by and large fundamentalists don't think are the best way of singing or even a good way of singing, but these vocalists can still minister in the churches because of their testimony. Yes. And the testimony is really the most important thing. So much as style, performance practice, much as that is held up as like, this is this is really, really, really important. This has great spiritual significance. And again, you know, not to go on and on about my dissertation, but you know, there I wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages about musical style and its significance. Yes. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that is actually secondary to what a person believes and how they live out their life as a Christian. Right, because the spirit could move someone through what, what you know of the singer's testimony. So say that you know that this singer spent, you know, a life away from God and has now returned, and you know that personally. You know this person who's joined your church. Mm -hmm. Because of their testimony, because like you are in community with yeah, them. Yeah, and so maybe their aural influences for the past 40 years have been, you know, Johnny Cash. And they, when they sing, sing like that. But you personally mm -hmm. know their testimony, and so you are moved by the way that God is speaking through them, through, again, mm -hmm. this text. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's this text yeah. that they, yeah. are, they are attesting to, which can move the entire congregation, even though stylistically they're singing in a way that's completely outside the bounds of what is encouraged yeah. in a fundamentalist it, church. It also could be a way of saying uh, that they're, they're singing using the resources that they have had and the training that they have had. And just because someone doesn't have that classical voice training, or just because, you know what, someone's voice is old and their voice cracks, and actually they can't quite get up to the highest part of the song's range. And, you know, in some churches, like that might not... Like there might even be solos that aren't particularly musically good from that, that performance kind of way, but they can still be spiritually good. Yeah, this is a really common trope, actually. The story is frequently told in fundamentalist churches, you know, of the, the classically trained vocalist who sings Amazing Grace and then the old person whose voice cracks sings it and everyone is moved by the second because... Yeah. Because of testimony. Yes, because of the way that vocalist ministers. And of course, that doesn't mean that the classically trained vocalist can't minister also. It's just, what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that the most important thing is actually the testimony. 
and that the virtuosity, much as fundamentalist musicians are repeatedly encouraged, give your best to God, give your best to God, and that usually means classical vocal training, even though that is there, at the end of the day, the important thing is, is the ministry that they have, the testimony that they have in their community. Yes. So that's it for episode two of our series on virtuosity. Next week, we'll have another episode dealing with virtuosity in Catholic circles led by David Vanderham. Go to this week's show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash 19, and you can see all the resources that we mentioned here, as well as get a link to last week's episode. Get in touch with us by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. You can get our monthly newsletter by signing up at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.